Well, look, Dad, your friend is building it. My friends, we were downtown driving around the new soccer stadium that is being built right here in St. Louis, Missouri, when my son Patrick yelled that out from the back seat of the car. Look, Dad, your friends are building it. He was referring to my friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies is proud to be a part of the team that is bringing Major League Soccer to America's first soccer capital right here in St. Louis, Missouri. As construction partners of the St. Louis City Stadium, they are looking forward for this project to be a place for entertainment, camaraderie, and passion for generations to come. You can learn more about that project and look what else they're building, Dad, by visiting them right now online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. Did you know that social isolation and loneliness are directly linked to a variety of health issues, including high blood pressure, substance abuse, heart disease, and even cancer? And even before the global pandemic, research revealed that two-thirds of adults reported to being lonely and that the average adult had not made a new friend in more than five years. Here's the question for us. Why are we so lonely? Why are we struggling making friends as we age? And maybe even more importantly, why are friendships so importantly in the first place? Well, today we're going to get into answering those questions while also discussing the benefits of maintaining friendships that include improved mood. They help you reach your goals. They reduce our stress and depression. They support us through difficult times and they're there for us and we for them as we age they boost our self-worth, and we're going to do all these things with my new friend and yours. Her name is Dr. Marissa Franco. She is a psychologist and a friendship expert. Marissa has studied friendship intensively, doing research on friendship all over the world. She is a professor and currently writing a book on friends called Platonic. It's due out in September of this year. You, my friends, are going to need a notebook for this episode as this conversation is going to be packed filled with practical tips, real-world examples, and psychological research on how to make, how to maintain, and how to deepen your friendships. So won't you join me, my friends, in welcoming our new friend and now yours. Her name is Dr. Marissa Franco. Marissa, welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Well, I've, like you and I were talking before I hit record, I feel like I'm already on with a friend right now. And I don't say that like as a pun. I connected with you when I read your work, when I've looked through a whole lot of your podcasts, when I've watched a bunch of your videos, you've got an awesome spirit and you do phenomenal work. But rather than me being the one that introduces that work to our listeners, I thought maybe today you could be that that voice. So if if you and I bumped into each other randomly in a grocery store, and I introduced myself and told you what I did professionally. And I said to you, Don't, Marissa, tell me about you. How, how yeah. would you introduce yourself back to me? Ooh, 
It's a good question. I'm a, currently a professor at University of Maryland, a psychologist, a speaker, and a friendship expert. So out of all those things, probably the one that rings my bell clearest and loudest is friendship expert. What is a friendship expert? Friendship expert means that I've really delved deep into some of the research and the science on friendship and have tried to turn it into something digestible to help people make and keep friends in their lives. Tell me why that matters. So for me, you know, as I was chatting with you a little bit before the show, John, um, I got really interested in friendship because in my young 20s, I went through a breakup. I took it really hard. I think I took breakups really hard at the time. And I realized part of the reason why was because I thought romantic love was the only love that mattered. The only love that gave me significance and legitimacy mm -hmm. was if I had a romantic partner. And after the breakup, you know, I was feeling really bad. So I started this wellness group with my friends where we met up and we did yoga together. We meditated, we cooked and it was awesome. And it was life-changing for me. And I think the most life-changing part of it wasn't the wellness per se. It was regularly meeting up with friends and it led me to start questioning. I have all this love in my life. Why am I pretending like that love doesn't matter? Um, and I thought, you know, this isn't something that's just me. I think this is something about the culture we're in and the way that we're raised to see this hierarchy of love with friendship at the bottom, being insignificant, being trivial, right? Like people right. who are single experience all this stigma. Um, you know, we're always asked whether we're going to be married and find a romantic partner. We're not really asked about our friends. So I kind of just wanted to be part of, I guess, the culture change around that once I realized how much it had caused issues for me personally. Until you said it like that, that clearly, I've never even thought about that. But very seldom do you talk to someone about, hey, how are your friends? How deep are they? How many do you have? Who's your best friend? And we may do that a little bit in third grade, but by eighth grade, we begin fading that toward the sidelines. And by the end of high school, done. It seems like the romantic interest is the one that we are far more interested in. Why do you think that is? Oh, there's just like so many reasons, I would say, throughout our history. Um, it used to be that, you know, women needed to get married because otherwise they couldn't own property or, or you know, they really, really didn't have access to jobs or careers. And so during that time, friendship was more valued because it wouldn't threaten a romantic relationship, right? Like people needed to get married to have access to rights, women in particular. Um, but then as, as, you know, women started to gain more rights, which we know is great, <laughs> but I think the downstream consequence was that now if friendship is so meaningful and so significant, it can sort of threaten the institution of marriage because people could want to spend their lives with their friends. Um, and so I think part of the ways that we've tried to protect, I guess, the institution of marriage has been devaluing and delegitimizing friendship, unfortunately. And that's come with many costs for us. I'm going to go back even farther than when you broke up with your partner in your early 20s and found friends and the value of friendship. I don't know where you grew up and I don't know much about your upbringing. So would you just take us all the way back to the beginning so I can get a sense for the experiences that formed you into this incredible person that you are today? Oh, well, thank you. So I grew up in New York City, uh, Brooklyn and Staten Island. My parents are both immigrants. My dad's from Italy and my mom's from Haiti. And oh. I lived in Italy for a little bit of time when I was younger. I'd say when I was young, I was really a tomboy. I only hung out with boys <laughs> and then things shifted around like middle school. I look back when I was younger and I'm like, I don't think I was a particularly good friend. And I think the reason is that I 
confused love with power. I thought to be loved was to be the most powerful, which mm -hmm. meant that my goal was to be above people, not be alongside them. <laughs> Studying friendship, doing a lot of self-growth work now has made me realize that like to love people is power, that it's mm -hmm. a gift to give love just as much as it is to receive it, that you know, you can't form connection on a hierarchy. And so if you're trying to be above people, you can't actually relate to them. And so now I would hope that I'm a little bit of a better friend. You mentioned this unusual connection between your father from Italy and your mother from Haiti. Uh, talk about it, your, your mother first, and then a little bit about your dad. Yeah. So my mom is like very, very joyful, which is like the Haitian way. Um, she's really good at making everybody feel comfortable um, all the time. She loves, loves, loves to work. <laughs> she works really hard. I guess that's part of the immigrant hustle too. She actually told me when she immigrated from Haiti that she was very sad and her dad told her, well, get over it by like working. <laughs> um, and so she just kind of worked, I think, to cope. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, she's definitely passed that down to me. I work super hard. I, I often have to check myself. Um, and my dad, you know, he grew up in Italy. He actually didn't come here until he was in his mid to late 20s. So he still has an accent and um, we can't go through drive-thrus because <laughs> they don't understand him. And they make me, he makes me go inside. <laughs> wow. um, yeah, and he's, he's very intellectual, I would say. Um, my parents are both love to travel. They love to learn different languages. They speak multiple languages. That's something that I love too and that they've certainly passed down to me. And um, yeah, I also have, four siblings, and I am the youngest. The, the love story between a Haitian immigrant and uh, an immigrant from Italy, how did they connect? What, what, what sparked that friendship and then that love? You know, I think it's where anybody connects who's different from someone else, and that's Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> um, but they actually met because my mom put an ad in a newspaper and she, it said like, you know, Caribbean queen looking for X, <laughs> Y, and Z. And my dad responded, funny enough, my dad's ex-wife was Haitian and my, my grandma had knew about him. And so she was like really into this idea. <laughs> and my, my mom's grandparent was also Italian. So it was sort of like, I guess there was this sense of familiarity um, that happened between them. And their first date was at Junior's Cheesecake. <laughs> you, you go through life, uh, Brooklyn, Stanton Island, back and forth between Italy, maybe down to Haiti. You're living the good life. You eventually go on, is it New York University? Is that where you went to college? That's where what I went to college, yeah. What was your major and what were you seeking to do in your life? I majored in applied psychology. I was at that time just trying to get to the top. I was definitely moving super quickly. Uh, I graduated college in three years and then went straight for my PhD, just trying to do all the things, I guess. I was an RA, you know, I got involved in research and just very ambitious at the time. And I would say, it's not that I'm not ambitious now, it's that um, I value other things alongside ambition. <laughs> so there's a little bit more balance, I would say, in my life right now. Talk about your master's, because you went for in the, doc the doctorate into counseling, psychology and, and counseling. What was it about that field that you found attractive and meaningful? Counseling psychology is specifically focused on like multiculturalism and social justice and understanding how larger systems affect and impact people's behaviors, right? So, you know, I think we all lie on dimensions of like personal agency and 
systemic realities, right? And um, counseling psychology really acknowledged that. And that was really appealing to me. I think in college, it was like such a formative time for me to understand my own racial identity and to understand how like my racial experiences had affected my life um, in ways that were often invisible to me, but then you kind of learn about the biases that exist and look back and say, yeah, hey, like why did my middle school teacher tell me that I couldn't get into that school? Or why did everybody tell me I got into that school because of affirmative action? It was just really meaningful for me to kind of understand, I think, systems and structures that affect people and affect and constrain the agency that they do have. That's part of why I chose counseling psychology. And I, I've also just loved the idea of like being able to practice and do research because to be a better practitioner, you need to grow as a person, <laughs> as a psychologist. So it's like, I guess like an intensive six years of self-growth alongside um, having to, you know, learn new curriculum and learn academic things. What, what was your thesis in? My thesis was specifically on racial identity and validation, which is when people invalidate or deny people's race, like saying, you know, you're not really black because X, Y, Z, or, you know, you're not really Asian because you're good at math and, and the psychological effects of that. So you and I were talking before we hit record and, and you asked me about speaking and sharing in the, in the podcast. And I mentioned to you that I spent the majority of my life hiding from my differences, hiding my hands and hiding my scars and hiding the wounds and the brokenness of the, the fire. Did you find yourself as a young lady progressing and climbing and achieving in part to, to bury the differences, like the things you thought felt made you less than somehow, or was that not at all part of your past? I think it was to be loved, <laughs> to really feel like I guess I connected, you know, the more I achieve, the more I will be valued, the more I will be loved. Um, and that was definitely a big part of it, you know, you know, just not understanding what love was. Now I feel like we are all inherently worthy of love. <laughs> um, but also feeling like, you know, just like I said, equating love with power and that to be loved by people, I have to be better than them which made me very competitive with other people and just had ugliness and how I related to other people and made me want to put down other people so that I could feel like I was better myself. I would say it was a need to be loved and a confusion as to what love really was um, that contributed. And then I will say, I guess it was some sort of like intergenerational trauma kind of. I mean, my mom had a really difficult time moving to the US. My grandma was very depressed. She was you know, doing electroshock therapy for her depression when she came here. So my mom came to a new country, you know, with her parent figure really being sick um, and her turning to like busyness and ambition um, to, to have something to distract herself from all of that. So I kind of learned that, I think, you know, just from witnessing it as like, oh, this is a coping mechanism. You know, it almost can regulate your stress to have mm -hmm. something to focus all your energy and attention on. Tell me why you think it is that we do so much work around relationships intimately, so romantic relationships in my marriage and how to have the best 50 years together and all this stuff. And when I was Googling articles and books around platonic relationships, which you are now expert in, there's almost nothing out there. And it, it's incredibly important. And there's not a whole lot of research coming our way. Yeah. You know, you're right, John. This is a big problem. I'm not someone who has any problem with marriage and love and spouses and romantic love. I just think that we can think more expansively about love and all the ways that it can look like in our lives and all the options that we have for the love that's afforded to us. I don't want to 
bring down romantic love as much as I want to elevate platonic love. So let's talk about love and specifically platonic love. When we are little ones, we run around and laugh all recess long and come back into the classroom and have all kinds of friends and classmates and buddies and overnight celebrations and field trips. Then it goes through high school and we're seeking that and then into college. But the research these days is that the majority, not some, the majority of adults don't have dear friends that they can lean into. And, and we'll unpack some of the stats together today as we progress. Why do you think it is as we become adults, we lose not only the friendships that we had in the past, but the ability to build new friendships going forward? One of the reasons sociologists have identified for friendships to happen is because we have certain ingredients, and that is continuous unplanned interaction, which means I'm going to see you even if I don't plan to see you, and shared vulnerability right? And so in school, we had that, right? Met up with our friends on the playground at recess, and we just saw them every day, and relationships could happen organically. But as adults in our workplaces, maybe we see people every day, but we don't always have vulnerability, and friendships don't happen organically anymore, John. Like, people that think friendships happen without effort are more lonely years later, and people that see friendships as taking effort are less lonely. Like, we have to be intentional. We, have, we can't be passive when it comes to friendship. And it's just one of the most important things in our lives. So, um, you know, like loneliness is as toxic for our bodies as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, the research finds. So I think we absolutely should be intentional and not passive when it comes to making friends and making connections because we need to. I, and I can hear some people whispering toward their podcast, toward their radio, toward their YouTube television, whatever it might be. Yeah, but I'm just, I'm just not good at making friends you know, or I'm not popular. I don't even know where to turn. So for those looking toward you and me right now, asking that question, they're not sure where to turn, where, where should they turn to make either enduring friends from the past come alive again, or look forward and to reimagine how they can make new friends going forward? So the first thing that I tell people to do is assume people like you. Because if you assume rejection, it is a self-fulfilling prophecy, according to the research. When we think we're going to be rejected, we are colder, we are more distant, we are more withdrawn, right? When we think we're going to be accepted, it's a phenomenon called the acceptance prophecy, we are warmer, we are more engaged, we are more present, we are more friendly, <laughs> all the things that make us friends. So assume that people like you, remind yourself when you're like, oh, they probably don't want to hang out with me, they probably don't care. Oh, no, I'm going to just assume that they like me. <laughs> and that is going to facilitate you reaching out and saying, hey, you know, I've really enjoyed getting to know you. I would love to connect sometime. Would you be open to that? Like key initiation lines. And people tell me that, well, why should I assume that if it's untrue? But actually we have a bias to underestimate how much people like us. It's called the liking gap. We all have this bias. And the more self-critical you are, the more pronounced the liking gap is, the more likely it is that you're underestimating how much people like you. So I'm not just throwing these loose ideas at you. I'm telling you the science here. People like you more than you think. The world is way more open to you than it, you think it is. And all you have to do is start asking. Well, I think we should start asking because it's high time. One of the stats I've read from you is that we are now four to five times less likely to have good friends than we were several decades ago. And that number is even higher among men. So four to five times more likely to have no friends than we were separate several decades ago. And yes, five times for men, four times for women. And friendship networks have been shrinking for the last few decades. And specifically, we're less likely to have a confidant than we were a few decades ago. And confidant, having a confidant, John, 
there's a study that looked at 106 things that prevent against depression. Having a confidant was the number one thing. So not having a, de- a confidant is decimating our mental health and well-being, as is, you know, more generally losing friends. So it is really, really important, I think, especially in this pandemic, where a lot of us feel like, our, you know, we're losing friends left and right, to just be more and more intentional and to have agency around putting ourselves out there to make friends. One of the challenges with our show, and it's one of the blessings as well, is we have 100-year-old friends tuning in and six-year-old kids on the way to preschool today tuning in as well. So getting the conversation just right for these various age groups is a bit of a struggle, but, but playing right down the middle, it, it seems that it's not only harder to have these good friends, but it's harder to get back together because everybody's so busy. Like the, the, the pace of life right now is epically fast. So as we race through and see people a lot, but don't really connect with people in depth, what are some suggestions on how we can actually have deeper relationships with these friends and actually form true friendships? So the big thing that I suggest is to embrace vulnerability. I think we have so many misconceptions about vulnerability. One, that it makes us weak. I am a fan of what's called the fever model, which is that vulnerability indicates weakness and strength at the same time. Just like when we have a fever, we're sick with something, right? That's why we want to unload. That's why we want to release. But when we're vulnerable and we share it, we are strong because we are acting to heal ourselves, right? By sharing. You know, we think vulnerability burdens people. We think it makes us people see us as weak. But in fact, the research finds that the more we intimately disclose about ourselves, the more liked we are. And that we have a bias, just like around rejection, to assume people are going to judge us more than they actually will. It's called the beautiful mess effect when we're vulnerable. Start sharing with your friends what's really going on. Like experiment with telling them if you're struggling and asking them what's really going on. Be intentional about asking better questions, asking deeper questions, not just like, how's the weather? But like, you know, what's what's something that's been on your mind a lot lately? What's something that you're struggling with? Or, you know, questions that welcome other people's vulnerability, because vulnerability is really one of the backbones of connection, I would say. How is technology affecting vulnerability? In weird ways. <laughs> weird ways, because I think some of us are super vulnerable, right? Like people are sharing <laughs> on right. social media um, things that they don't tell their best friends. And, you know, there's ways that I think social media has also manipulated vulnerability where people are are being vulnerable to, to gain clout or to gain traction. So it's strange, I would say. It's weird. I will say, like, it can also be a medium for you to, like, keep in touch with friends and, you know, to make sure that you're you're keeping in contact and, and sharing vulnerable things, right? Because now I can email you. Now I can send you a Facebook message. Now I can send you a DM. So it could be another medium for our vulnerability as well. But we just want to make sure, I think ultimately vulnerability is authentic. And mm. authenticity means that we are doing something because it reflects our true selves, not because we have an alternative agenda. Sometimes people are too vulnerable almost like compulsively vulnerable where they share their trauma with someone they just met. And that's actually a way of testing people of saying, are you still going to love me if if you know X, Y, and Z about me? And we have that alternative agenda. Vulnerability is not actually authentic, right? Because vulnerability has to come from an authentic place. Like I'm feeling in this moment that I can be comfortable with you. Like I'm reading the cues. I'm discerning the situation rather than I'm trying to manipulate you into being connected with me. So you don't leave me. Right. So I think we also need to understand internally where we're coming from when we're vulnerable. Speaking of technology, we've been using technology a bit more over the past 24 months because of COVID. 
How has the global pandemic affected friendship and isolation and, and struggles with mental health and emotional wellness? I mean, I've definitely seen mental health go down, which will surprise no one. Um, loneliness, I've seen mixed results in the research on loneliness because I think we got really lonely and then people started to take a little bit more initiative when it comes to connection. And the other thing is if you're reaching out to people for support and receiving it, that's like the opposite of loneliness. And so there's this way, I guess, that when we're going through something really difficult, we can find out how connected we are to people. Like we only right. really know how much someone loves us when, when they show up for us in those times when we really need. So that's why I would say like, there's like mm, different ways. It's kind of more complicated, the picture around loneliness, but certainly it's affecting our mental health. And and the problem is that when we are suffering mental health-wise, certain things tend to happen to us. We tend to be more focused on ourselves. We tend to be thinking about how other people are slighting us and not how we're slighting them. Um, mm. We tend to take less initiative. We become in this self-protective stance, right? Where I'm more focused on protecting myself. I'm not going to trust you. I'm not going to reach out. I'm not going to show you love because that's going to make you more vulnerable. And in fact, a lot of the times we think of self-protection we only register the ways that it, it makes us feel protected, but we don't register that self-protection often happens at the cost of our relationships, right? Because the things yes. that I need to do to, to better my relationships make me more vulnerable. And that's being more vulnerable. That's being more trusting. That's reaching out. That's telling you how much I love you. All those things make me more vulnerable and less self-protected, but they're necessary because if we're in self-protective stance, we're really not protecting ourselves because we are damaging our relationships. So in the long run, that's, that's I guess, one of the worst things we can do to protect ourselves. Marissa, you've shared a stat before that, and I'm going to get it wrong, so I'll let you get it right, but that a, a large percentage of adults haven't made a friend in more than five years. We have not made a new friend in more than five years. There was a Evite study that found like the average person hasn't made a new friend in the last five years. And, you know, John, it's really because I have to think systemically about this because if everyone's failing at friendship, it can't be that all of us are just bad. <laughs> um, I think we, we need to understand like what's going on in our society right now that's making friendship so hard, right? And there's this um, interesting book, Bowling Alone, and the author kind of goes into that. And one of the things that he finds as being the biggest culprit for why we've been disengaging from society is the television. <laughs> and it gives us something else to do. It gives us a sense of pseudo connection. Like I'm connected enough to these characters on the TV that I don't feel as much of a need to reach out. And it also creates lethargy. So once we're sitting on the television for too long, we don't want to do anything else. And that his study came out before really the rise of social media, but you could see how social media has contributed to that more and more, making us lonelier and lonelier. And I think also like, John, we have a culture of such convenience now. And the cost of that has been human interaction, right? Like someone can show up at my door and deliver my groceries, right? Like I can get taken Uber to the airport. I don't have to ask a friend to bring me to the airport. And so I think this convenience culture has given us a lot, but it's, it's also been a sacrifice. And there's ways that in my own life, I've been trying to make my life more inconvenient. <laughs> I'm trying to go and print my documents at FedEx instead of using my printer or go to the library instead of downloading the book on my Kindle, right? Because I know that, oh, running some of these errands is going to give me time to like connect with people. And that's also valuable. You know, it's so interesting. People occasionally will give me trouble because John O'Leary live inspired. And they're if I'm ever having a rough day, they're like, dude, you're not living inspired. So you, this friendship guru, this platonic expert, 
if you're not there for someone, if you're not asking the right questions, if you're just struggling and you don't feel like returning the phone call, I would imagine you take a little bit of heat for it. But I'm, I'm going to frame the question positively. In the last 10 years, since you've been doing this work and on this journey, how are you a better friend now than you were back then? There's this like psychoanalyst that she talks about. Our relationships could be one of comfortable safety where we ignore problems and try to just pretend they don't exist or dynamic safety where we rupture and we repair and we rupture and we repair. And, we're, and I have realized, wow, this can really deepen your friendships when you address the problem and they receive it lovingly. <laughs> um, it can make you feel so much closer. And so, so conflict avoidant and scared and felt like if I brought this up, it would make things worse. And now I've been able to, and I, I'm still not perfect at it. You know, there's some conflicts. I'm like, I just need to sit on it, see, see how it goes. You know, it's still, there's still fear in me very viscerally, but now I know that I have the tools and I, and I, I've been proved over time that, oh, I can address this and it'll bring us closer and it'll bring us more love and it'll bring us more intimacy and more honesty. So that is a big thing being able to work through problems with friends. Other thing is I just feel like I bask more in like giving love um, and not just wanting to receive it. And I see, I see the value in being loving, not just for like everyone around me, but for me too. And then the, the last thing is I assume people like me. <laughs> and that's a really a life-changing assumption because in our social interactions, we never know the truth right? How often do people say, I confirm I like you, or I confirm I dislike you. So all the ways that we're reacting are based off of our interpretations. And our interpretations are self-fulfilling prophecies, like I shared earlier. So it's just made me so much less stressed, so much happier, so much more loving towards other people, because I'm not in that self-defensive mode to just be for my like more standing assumption being to assume people like me. But again, John, I want to say all this stuff isn't perfect. <laughs> I have my low moments. I think Thinking about growth as a spiral staircase where you're just higher up on the staircase, but you're back to where you were before over and over and over again, just a little higher. Like that's yep. kind of how I see it. There's a term that you have used a couple of times that I really like habitual open-mindedness. You will not hear that discussed tonight on Fox or MSNBC or CNN, but it should be. It's not part of the platform of the Republicans or the Democrats, but my goodness, it should be habitual open-mindedness. Tell me what that is and why it matters. Yeah, I mean, that's really great. Habitual open-mindedness is the idea that when you meet a person, all the associations you have about their group worship, um, to put them to the side and to just treat them like an individual. So like for me as like a Black person, people meeting me and being like, hey girl. And I'm like, that's not really the way I talk. <laughs> So it just looks like not trying to over-relate, not making any assumptions, just being like, you are a clean slate and let's start there. Why is that so difficult to do right now in, in the way that we show up in the world? Because it seems like what you're suggesting is almost the exact opposite as, as how most of us as adults show up in relationships. Yeah. I mean, I think it has to do with we're either in um, self-protection mode or pro-relationship mode. And I think habitual is a way to be in pro-relationship mode that makes us feel like we're more defenseless, right? Like if I can make all these assumptions about you, I know what to expect. I know how to protect myself. I know how to go about this interaction so that I feel like I will be less harmed. But if I'm habitually open-minded, then I don't have anything to tell me how to interact with you. I don't have anything to protect myself in case you do X, Y, and Z that I fear you might do, right? And so it's, 
it's willing us, to, I think, to be in this sort of pro relationship mode while recognizing that that requires us to give up a little bit of our defenses. And that's what I think people are really afraid of. You help us move through that fear toward love and uh, in, in doing so selflessly and vulnerably, not only do you inspire the people around you, but you yourself live and lead a far better life. You have a school right now online, the school of relationships, the school of connectedness. I've gone through your classes. You talk a lot about vulnerability. There's a term you use though that I had not heard before called repotting. What, yeah. what in the world is repotting? Repotting is a way to deepen your friendships. And the idea is to change the pot or change the settings in which you interact, right? So if you want to make friends with someone from your work, you can't just hang out at work. You got to friendship. You got to be like, let's go to happy hour. Let's go to a museum. Let's go for a walk. You know, whatever that looks like for you. It's a way of increasing intimacy because environments tend to bring up different sides of ourselves, right? And the more sides of ourselves we know in each other, the closer we'll end up being as long as it's positive sides. <laughs> so we, we just sort of choose different settings in which to interact with each other. And then the, the word you've thrown around a couple of times already, but affirming, do you think that's something that we need to be reminded of and trained on? Or is it just natural that the way you grow closer to people is to affirm them, to celebrate their life? I think it's totally something we need to be reminded of because, you know, like I said, when I used to conflate love and power, I was threatened by affirming other people because I thought to be loved, I had to be better than people. So I thought the way to be loved or to make people want to be my friend was to be cool, to be smart, to be funny, to charm people, to be entertaining. When in fact, those are the traits that people rate as the least important um, in a friend and the, the trait they rate as the most important is someone that makes them feel good about themselves. <laughs> Affirming people, it's, it's one of the factors that predicts whether we will become friends with someone, how much we affirm them. Um, and it's just like I said, John, like it feels really good for you too <laughs> to be in a place where you're looking for the best in people and looking for something to love in people. Like this is a secret of the science of connection. Anything that you do to better your connection is also going to better your mental health and well-being because that's mm -hmm. how intimately our own mental hardware is tied with our ability to socialize as social creatures. An area where many of our listeners spend a majority of their time is at an office. And sometimes that office is surrounded with human beings all around them. But over the last couple of years, many of us are working from a basement, from a spare bedroom, from a, the closet when the kids aren't banging on the door. I mean, it, it can be pretty chaotic for many people still trying to have healthy professional relationships. What's some advice or encouragement you might give those of us either work in the halls like we are right here at Live Inspired or you're working virtually like so many of our clients and friends are? I would say try to make friends at work because it's linked to being happier at workplace, being more satisfied, being more fulfilled, being more innovative, cooperating more, everything you want in a fulfilling workplace is predicted by whether you have friends at work. What does that look like? That means asking people like, hey, do you want to like have virtual coffee or virtual lunch just to chat, like not to just talk about work, like to create connections at work. This is something that I speak on stop talking about work and just be a human. Uh, share a little bit about yourself, your hobbies, your interests, your, something you're excited to about the future. Ask other people about that in themselves. And then, you know, if you feel like you're having a connection with someone, make it repeated. Be like, oh, would you be open? I, I really enjoyed connecting with you. Would you be open weekly or even monthly? Like just us just having a chat to like get to know each other and reconnect. This has just felt so good for me. You've been doing this work for quite a while. Are you seeing that, are, are we getting better? at relationships? Are you, are you optimistic? Are you buying the, the platonic relationship uh, journey? We have more tools than we've ever had. 
And I feel like that makes a difference. We see a lot of online resources. There's a lot of more research that's out there. Platonic research has obviously been moving a little bit slower, but here's something else I've learned from studying friendship, John. It's that relationships are relationships. What makes your, your platonic relationship succeed makes your romantic relationship succeed. You know, just like going on dates with your spouse has made your relationship better, going out with your friends and doing new activities makes it better. Just like showing your spouse love all the time, making them feel secure makes it better. Your fr- makes your friends better too. So there is this way that I, I can pull from and steal from the romantic relationships research sometimes in realizing that, but also like platonic love is the foundation of good romance, right? Like our romantic relationships are more sustained. We have better sex when we feel like we are friends with our spouse too. So the lines are, are, are more blurry and there's more research, there's more tools, there's more people talking about it, there's more books that are out there. So that gives me hope, hope that, that we can heal because I think being a better friend is about healing. Mm. You offer something on your website called Friendship Survey. I took it. I walked through it. Some of the things weren't surprising, but they were affirming. And that's a beautiful thing to receive. I want to share the top three characteristics of John O'Leary, the friend. They are supportive. Thank you for that. Vulnerable. Apparently, O'Leary is an oversharer. He's pretty honest about himself with others who he loves. And affirming. So that was cool. Not a whole lot needed to be said there, but areas that I'm weak. And these both bother me. Initiation and identity acceptance. We'll take those one by one. Initiation first, tell us what that word means. I think it's fairly self-explanatory, but what does it mean? Why does it matter? And how does a guy like John and many others become a little bit better at initiating in a relationship? So initiation just means that you initiate a new friendships in your life. You find something you like and you're like, hey, I'd love to hang out right? That you are not passive when it comes to making friends, waiting for them to come into your life. You feel like you have the agency to create the friendships that you really want. And that's not what most people are lowest on. I get the stats. They get sent to me. People really struggle with that initiative. It's not something we've been taught. We've been taught friendships happen organically. We don't know that we need to do it. But like I said, as adults, they don't happen organically much. (laughs) So We absolutely do. The other thing is identity affirmation. So if you ask me, like, what predicts whether best friends stay best friends over time? um, The research finds that identity affirmation is key. And that is accepting people for who they are rather than trying to impose your ideals onto them. So for example, my friend is like, I want to quit my job and move to Costa Rica. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I would never move to Costa Rica. What is she doing? But I realize that these are my values of stability and security. They're not my friend's values. My friend values adventure. I can make her feel seen for the identity that she is in rather than the identity that I feel like she should have. That's an area I think most of us have an opportunity to do far better, to accept and love people as they are where they are. And in doing that, not only will we become better friends, I think we collectively will be a far better world. My friend, we are about to step into the Live Inspired seven questions, so get ready for that. But before we do, give us just a couple things that we can do as human beings to elevate our friendships going forward. We've talked around it. You've discussed a few, but for the folks who are grabbing a pen right now and a Live Inspired journal, what are some things they can do right now to say, gosh, John, here's my checklist of things I would recommend they do either each day, each week, in a, in a relationship to, to be more proactive? Give us a list. So here are my takeaways. Assume people like you. Initiate new friendships. 
Tell your friends how much you love and value them. Be more vulnerable in your relationships. Try to accept your friends for who they are and not who you think they should be. Well said, succinct. So now we move into the Live Inspired 7, where we learn some of the, the, the gifts that you've learned along the way that probably helped you articulate that as clearly as you just did. It starts with number one. Question number one is, what is the most influential or effective, impactful book you've ever read? I would say Bell Hooks, All About Love. She taught me that love is about helping someone express who they really are, that that's what love is. What is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl growing up in Brooklyn that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? The ability to just let loose and have fun. I've been trying to be better at having fun, which is weird to say. <laughs> You'll be a better friend if you do. I'd say let your hair down all the way and just come on, dude, let's have some fun. Let's go out. Exactly. Spontaneity, you know, all that. If your home or your condo, your your room caught fire and all living things, all living people are out, you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item. What would be the one thing you would grab? It would probably be my laptop, which has access to all the information that I share on friendship. It's like my second brain. Including the upcoming book, Platonic. We'll talk about that at the very end, but but, but I'm, I'm going to make you take uh, something else in the other hand. So if you could not grab something digital, it's not your phone, it's not your laptop. Is there anything from your father or your mother? You mentioned your grandmother several times or a dear friend that you would grab and, and you'd have uh, in your left hand as you walked out of the house. There is a necklace that my brother bought me and he bought it for me when we were in a state of conflict and our relationship was kind of rocky. So it really meant a lot to me that he just was willing to say with that necklace, like, even when we're fighting, I still love you. Mm, that's beautiful. Well, that's very cool. Thank you for sharing that. If you could sit on a bench with anyone living or dead and have a long conversation, who would you want to be hanging out with for that afternoon? Maybe Oscar Wilde. He's oh. like brilliant. He's so witty. I just feel like shocked by, by everything that he says and, and just be learning a ton. Oscar Wilde. My grandfather loved Oscar Wilde. Loved him. I had, had everything up on, on the bookshelf. What was it about Oscar that you, uh, you know, anyone from history, as you just said, why Oscar? I think I would be around brilliance. I think that he would make me see the world differently in a short interaction with him. I think I get the highest bang for my interaction buck with a person like Oscar Wilde. What's the best advice Oscar or anyone else has ever given you? So the best advice you've ever received is? To trust yourself, but it's it's a complicated one, right? Because you're like, how do I do this? <laughs> and that's the more complicated piece. But at the end of the day, the bare bones of just like trusting yourself, because yeah. I realized that if you don't, eventually, things aren't going to work out or things aren't going to sustain because yourself you, is not something you can keep hidden for very long. What advice would you whisper into that pre-graduate 20-year-old self as you're finishing up New York University a year early? I would definitely say, feel your feelings. Don't try to push them away. Don't try to suppress them. Just like locate where they are in your body and lean into them and, and find ways to like feel them more because they'll be released. Wow. Will you tell me more about that? Because sometimes it seems like the way to get rid of a feeling is to strive to feel it less. So if you're feeling grief or you're anxious or anger, whatever the feeling is, some people would encourage you run in the opposite direction. And the yeah. advice you gave yourself is no, 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 sit with it, put your arm around it, hold it close. 
Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, those people probably are, are helping us gain more precision over that advice, which is the idea that there's wallowing in your feeling, advising, which means like taking a situation and thinking about all the ways it could be worse or all the fears that you have, but feeling your feelings is not wallowing. It's, it's not, I guess, like inflaming the feeling that's there. It's mm -hmm. recognizing what's there. It's allowing it. It is, con it's containing it in your body. It's, um, feeling it in your body. It's not trying to resist it really. Um, because the more that you resist, the harder it knocks. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, a it comes from a more settled place, I think, than when we wallow in our emotions or make them greater. And I think when we do that, like I said, John, one stat that I quoted for you is of 106 factors that prevent against depression, having a confidant is the most important. And the reason is that when we confide in someone, we're feeling our feelings with another person and then we're releasing them. What a great way to put a button on a beautiful conversation. And it's so true and it is so needed in particular in these divided, isolated days that we find ourselves living in. So it brings us, my friend, to our seventh and final Live Inspired question. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. Dr. Marissa, what would you like your one sentence to be? Here lies Marissa. She healed people. <laughs> Dr. Marissa Franco, platonic love expert, friend, sojourner, and a reminder to us all that things are getting better. Things are getting better, but you're part of that solution. I want to thank you for being part of our program today and reminding me of the value of friendship. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so touched by this conversation. It was just really great to talk to you. We were friends before we hit record, and now I'm going to give you a hug from, what, 1,800 miles away. I look forward to the real-life platonic hug next time we see each other physically. Absolutely, John. Thank you. Uh, for your, your book does not roll out till November, but I do want to make sure that you have an opportunity of celebrating what you've created. So what should we be looking forward to? So I've actually negotiated with my publisher for it to come out in September. Uh, so September 6th, it's called Platonic, The Surprising New Science of Making and Keeping Friends as an Adult. And it's all about the science of how we can be better friends and also make more friends. And it comes out September 6th with Penguin Random House. Well, I'll be in line. And so will my friends. I want to thank you again for being with us today, Marissa. My pleasure. Well, my friends, that is Dr. Marissa Franco. My name is John O'Leary. And today is your day. Live Inspired. Well, my friends, I told you earlier in this episode that Dr. Franco was going to share a wonderful pathway for you and I to deepen our friendships and to have an even more active reason in seeking new friendships. There's always one or two takeaways that I'm looking to receive from a podcast interview, and I got a lot more than one or two takeaways in this one, including these specific five next steps as you and I elevate our friendships. If you've written nothing down to this point, that's all right. Grab your favorite Live Inspired journal right now, though. Pick it up, open it up, and take these five notes down. How do you deepen? How do you elevate friendships going forward? Number one, assume that people like you. Just assume goodwill. Wouldn't that be wonderful in a marketplace where so many others step into every meeting with their fists clenched? Assume others like you. Assume goodwill. Number two, initiate that's right, adults. Kids do it naturally, sharing lunch, sharing chips, sharing Doritos, sharing life. They do it naturally. As we age, it becomes a little bit more difficult to initiate the outreach. But one way to elevate 
and expand our friendships are to initiate new ones. So it's been five years for some of us. That's far too long. Initiate a new friendship. Number three, tell your friends, those you already have, how much you love them, how much you value them, and give them specific examples of what it meant to you in the past. Be specific. It will not only encourage and inspire them, but will do the same for you as well. So assume others like you initiate new friendships. Tell them that you love them and tell them why. Number four, seek to become even more vulnerable. There's a wonderful C.S. Lewis quote on vulnerability. I won't read it all to you right now, but let me share with you just a little bit. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly even broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe and dark and motionless and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. C.S. Lewis reminds us that we must risk loss. The way we do so, my friends, as put forward by Dr. Marissa Franco today, be vulnerable. Risk. Risk. It's one way to expand our friendships and our ability to influence others positively. And the fifth, one more way to do it is to try to accept your friends for who they are and not for who you wish they were. Love them at the well. Meet them where they are. Put your arm around them and move forward into life together. My friends, speaking of vulnerability, we've had some phenomenal experts on the Live Inspired podcast who have encouraged us to remain and to become incredibly vulnerable through our lives. But as my team and I were going through our podcast, the name just kept dancing out at us, Brene Brown, Brene Brown, Brene Brown. One of our favorite podcasts here, one of yours by voted upon by downloads, is Brene Brown's episode. You will find it way back in October of 2018 when she unpacked the beauty and the brilliance and the power of seeking a life of vulnerability. You're going to love it. So I'm going to encourage you right now to dance on over to episode 103 with my friend and soon to be your friend. Her name is Brene Brown. So friends, I'm so grateful that you joined me on this Live Inspire channel for these podcasts. So grateful that you and I are trying to live these messages together. And I remind you as we get ready to wrap up this episode and move into living it, that the foundation is firm, the headwind may be real, but the best days are in front of us. So for this time, and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. It is your day. Live Inspire. Healy Companies recognizes that their people are indeed their greatest asset. With a focus on career growth and well-being and safety, Keeley Companies are proud to be a career destination. If you or anyone you know is looking to join a culture unlike any other, let me encourage you right now to apply today and experience the Keeley way. If you want to truly make a difference and be part of an organization that recognizes that difference by investing in you, Learn more by checking them out online at keelycompanies.com.